It's Monday, August 8th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, what would happen if we just Thanos snapped all the mosquitoes out of existence? Would there be significantly adverse effects? Plus, from heat indexes to physiology, why the same temperature can feel so different in two different places or even at different times of the year. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Mosquitoes are one of the great summer annoyances. They're not just pests, though. Many of them can carry life-threatening diseases. Dengue fever, Zika, West Nile virus, yellow fever, malaria. Overall, mosquitoes kill somewhere between 750,000 and a million humans each year. The only other animal that breaks into the hundreds of thousands of kills each year, coming in second as the deadliest animal to humans, is fellow humans. We're already doing a pretty good job at ensuring our own species isn't around for much longer, and considering we like winning at all costs, what if we were to take out the only other animal above us on that list a bit more proactively? Now, with any pests, but especially ones that are the cause of so much death and suffering, and not just of humans, for the record, it can be easy to occasionally entertain the idea, what if they just didn't exist? Pretty quickly with most of those thought experiments, you realize that we need them for some reason. You know, bees, for example, we need them to keep pollinating plants. But mosquitoes? How much are they really helping the world? Do we really need them? Well, at least according to many scientists, no, not really. But eradicating all of them could pose some small risks, and eradication of all mosquitoes isn't really necessary anyways. Quoting a 2010 article in Nature, there are 3,500 named species of mosquito, of which only a couple hundred bite or bother humans. They live on almost every continent and habitat and serve important functions in numerous ecosystems. Mosquitoes have been on Earth for more than 100 million years, says entomologist Jitawadi Murphy, and they have co-evolved with so many species along the way. And continuing from nature, wiping out a species of mosquito could leave a predator without prey, or a plant without a pollinator. And exploring a world without mosquitoes is more than an exercise in imagination. Intense efforts are underway to develop methods that might rid the world of the most pernicious disease-carrying species. End quote. If we did manage to rid the world of mosquitoes, or even just some types of mosquitoes, how many animals would be out of a meal? Mosquitoes are the primary food source for a lot of other insects, as well as spiders, salamanders, lizards, frogs, some birds, and many types of fish, notably the mosquito fish. Nature notes that the mosquito fish is so talented at killing mosquitoes, it's actually stocked as pest control in some places. The mosquito fish would likely go extinct without mosquitoes, but a lot of the other species might find other sources of food, other types of insects to eat. And some animals we think of as primarily eating mosquitoes actually don't eat as many as we tend to think, especially in the wild. Bats, for example, mostly eat moths. Mosquitoes only make up 2% of their diets, according to nature. But one exceptional case of mosquitoes' impact is that of the Arctic tundra, where at certain times, there are so many mosquitoes that they form a thick, visible cloud. 
The caribou in that area pick migratory paths that attempt to evade the mosquitoes, who bite them enough to suck up to 300 milliliters of blood a day from each animal in the herd. If their path changed because there weren't mosquitoes to avoid, that would change the ecosystem because the caribou would now be trampling and feeding in different places. And while there's a concern about birds in the Arctic tundra losing their main source of food, some scientists like Kathy Kirby, a wildlife biologist in Alaska, says that mosquitoes don't actually show up in bird stomach samples in high numbers. Now, there are some cases where mosquitoes' larvae play an important role as filter feeders for aquatic ecosystems, and without them, plant growth could be affected, in some places more than others, where mosquitoes presently play more of an outsized role. That's why a lot of research right now is focused on ways to prevent mosquitoes from carrying diseases, but still allow them to live and breed and contribute to ecosystems. In fact, last year, the first genetically modified mosquitoes were released into the wild in Florida. And as I shared at the time, these mosquitoes were bred with a lethal gene that causes female offspring to die before reaching maturity, females being the only ones who bite humans. So this prevents the spread of diseases and also limits the population over time. The experiment was deemed a success and is being rerun this year in Florida as well as in California. But once you move beyond thought experiments and actually start thinking about eradicating entire species worth of mosquitoes, you have to start confronting your own morals. Even though mosquitoes can play a negative role in the lives of animals beyond just humans, like those poor caribou being pelted by clouds of mosquitoes, the idea of attempting to eradicate all or some species of mosquitoes is largely a human-centric notion. As medical entomologist Janet McAllister of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Colorado makes an excellent point, quote, if there was a benefit to having them around, we would have found a way to exploit them. We haven't wanted anything from mosquitoes except for them to go away, end quote. Sad but true, the fact that they haven't been exploited by humans for anything is perhaps the strongest argument that they don't offer any net positives to humans. I saw a musing on the subreddit Shower Thoughts yesterday that said the best survival strategies for animals seems to be to be useful to humans. As an example, evolutionary ecologist Dinah Fonseca points to the biting midges, or noceums, family of flies. They are super annoying and can infect humans with viruses, but we're not going to get rid of them because some of them are also pollinators of crops like cacao. A world with no noceum flies is a world without chocolate. But this isn't just about wanting to get rid of annoying pests because they aren't useful to us in any big, remarkable ways. It's about public health. As Smithsonian Magazine puts it, For thousands of years, the relentlessly expanding population of Homo sapiens has driven other species to extinction by eating them, shooting them, destroying their habitat, or accidentally introducing more successful competitors to their environment. But never have scientists done so deliberately under the auspices of public health. End quote. Surely, saving close to a million human lives a year would make any small, as entomologist Joe Conlon called them, hiccups worth it. But I can't help but wonder about the butterfly effect. If certain plant species die, if another insect becomes more dominant in order to sustain the diets of certain animals, if the migratory paths of some other animals change, what ripple effects will each of those eventually have that we can't presently foresee? 
As mosquito historian Timothy C. Weingard put it to Vox's Hope Reese in 2019, quote, To use the Star Wars analogy, there's a balance to the Force, and when there's a disturbance in the Force, things go awry, end quote. Exactly. And as Conlon continued, the ecosystems will get on with life, quote, something better or worse would take over. Better or worse. It could be worse. We could save hundreds of thousands of people's lives every year. Or we could cause even more to die. We just don't know. We are approaching the end of the Dog Days of Summer, so named for Sirius the Dog Star, link in the show notes to an old episode I did on the phrase, but it doesn't quite feel like it yet. As I'm recording, there is a heat index of 101 degrees Fahrenheit outside. Having grown up in a place where you could easily get over 40, 100 plus degree days a year without the heat index, you'd think I'd be used to this. And in some ways, I guess I am. But in other ways, I think my body is acclimated to the milder New York summers that I've enjoyed for the past decade. And that acclimating isn't just a feeling. It's backed up by scientific studies, and it's one of several reasons that the same temperature reported in a weather forecast can feel so vastly different in two places or as experienced by two different people. 538 dug into this last week to help throw some cold water on the constant arguments about, oh, Northerners or Europeans just can't take the heat, when in reality, there are some very good reasons why lower temperatures can feel just as bad to some people as higher ones do to them and vice versa. And relatedly, if anyone wanted to throw some cold water on me right now, I would be perfectly fine with that. But quoting from 538, most of the time, when you check the daily weather report, you're looking at the air temperature, a measurement of heat in the air around you. But that measurement doesn't tell the whole story of human experience, what you feel like when you open the door, and how the situation you find outside affects your body depends more than temperature, said Margaret Sugg, a professor of geography and planning at Appalachian State University. Humidity, airspeed, and direction, how hot it usually is compared to right now, and even how much the air cooled during the previous night, these factors all play a role in determining whether 88 degrees Fahrenheit feels comfortable or crushing. How we talk about thermal comfort is both cultural and scientific. End quote. A big one is heat indexes. You might know the heat index as the hotter in the summer and colder in the winter temperature on the forecast that's often presented beside the actual temperature with a feels-like label. A heat index is a formula that combines air temperature and humidity to give you a better idea of how you might genuinely experience the temperature and to indicate your risk of adverse reactions to more extreme temperatures. For example, you might see a forecasted temperature of 85 degrees and think you're good to go for an afternoon picnicking and throwing the frisbee around in the sun. But if you know that the heat index is going to put you in the high 90s, you might reconsider your plans, or at least prioritize packing lots of water and an umbrella for some shade. Giving us a more experientially based number can help keep us safe. But how heat indexes are calculated varies from country to country, and even from company to company. Canada's is called Humidex. AccuWeather's is Real Feel. And heat isn't even the only index. Salman Shustarian of Australia's Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology told 538 that there are 116 different indices out there for different contexts. 
And context matters, not just in terms of different weather factors or what activities a person might be engaging in, but also cultural context. New York City starts releasing heat advisories and posting PSAs about cooling centers and public pools anytime our temperature peaks into the low 90s. Earlier in the season, that number might be even lower. Back in Texas, the idea that people would need to be reminded of how to stay safe in the low 90s would be laughable. You'd have to post a heat advisory for most of the year. Now, as I and everyone else has said many times before, a big reason for that is infrastructure. A lot of places in the northern U.S., in Canada, and in Europe just weren't built for the extreme temperatures they're occasionally hitting nowadays. As 538 notes, quote, More than 80% of Tennessee households have central air conditioning, compared to 60% of Wisconsin households and less than 5% of homes in the U.K., end quote. Even a Tennessean used to 100-degree weather won't want to sit through it all day without their AC. But it's not just the infrastructural or behavioral adaptations that certain locations have made based on their historical weather patterns. Your body physically acclimates to different temperatures. Quoting again, Your body acclimatizes to the temperature range it's used to. Literally, your physiology changes. People accustomed to spending time outside in higher temperatures sweat more and have increased blood flow to the skin, two changes that can help the body offload excess heat. These are short-term effects and can go away if the person gets deacclimatized, a process that helps explain why lower high temperatures in spring can produce the same levels of heat sickness as higher temperatures later in the summer, says Sugg. But there's long-term acclimatization as well, with people used to living in hotter climates feeling more comfortable at higher temperatures, even if their health risks are actually larger. For example, in a comparison of outdoor workers in Mississippi and North Carolina, Sugg found that the Mississippi workers believed their jobs had lower heat risks, but were also the ones experiencing more heat strain events. Another study that compared the temperature and local perception of temperature across a bunch of European cities found that what people considered neutral in comfort corresponded pretty well with local temperature ranges and was in fact closer to the local maximum temperatures than the local mean. End quote. Take some of those Europeans and plop them in Texas for a few years and their bodies will probably acclimate. Because they're not inherently weaker, they just aren't used to those high temperatures. And, you know, conversely, I'd love to see my fellow Texans try to survive the harsh, icy winters in some parts of Europe or the northeastern U.S. People who have literally never seen snow shouldn't throw stones. Unfortunately, more people unused to snow might be seeing more of it, and more people unused to 100-degree weather might be getting more of it as the climate crisis marches on. So we're going to have to figure out some solutions together. And despite all the snarkiness online, during this past heat wave in Europe, I also saw lots of people from the southern U.S. sharing tips for beating the heat, just like so many northerners and European people did during the power crisis in Texas in February of 2021. Remembering that we are all in this together and that other people's experiences, even when different from our own, are still valid is what will help us make it through. All right, well, that's going to be it from me for today. But as always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.